0: I'm Chris. Hey, everybody. I'm
1: Robert, and we're the Never Ending Podcast.
0: <laughs> I don't even know what to respond to. That <laughs> you way. wish
1: we ended I know. <laughs> it's up Sorry, there. guys.
0: <laughs> we are the Film Flamers. <laughs> we are the Film Flamers. Thank you. That totally threw me off. Uh, and we are continuing our journey into Gateway Horror this month by talking about the Never Ending Story. Finally. We've been wanting to talk about this movie for a long time. Yeah. And we were just trying to find the right way to like fit it in.
1: Well, I think we were, yeah, we were like toying with our top tens, even before we ever did episode one of the Mm -hmm. show over four years ago. And we were talking about like, what are the top tens we want to do? And I think gateway horror was one of the earliest. And we've been talking
0: about different things that we put on this list for years. That's right. And the never ending story was really high on that list. I think it was like number two or three. Yeah. Yep. So, um, Of course, we're going to be talking about it because Chris and I both really enjoyed this movie as children. Yes. And we know a lot about it. We talk about it all the time. We quote it. Oh, yeah. Um, So it is, um, (laughs) it seems natural to do it. Our attacks. Speaking of which, this episode is dedicated to our attacks. May he rest in
1: peace. Stupid horse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You have to care. You have to try.
1: The Never Ending Story is a 1984 fantasy film co-written and directed by Wolfgang Peterson and based on the 1979 novel of the same name by Michael Inde. The film stars Noah Hathaway, Barrett Oliver, Tammy Stronach, Gerald McRaney, and Moses Gunn. Alan Oppenheimer provided the voices for Gmork, Rockbiter, and Falcor the Luck Dragon, as well as the narrator. He did a lot. He does. And he also the voice for Skeletor I mean, he did. I didn't know that. He's done some Transformers
0: and yeah, the original is all over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The film follows a boy who discovers a magical book that tells of a young warrior who is given the task of stopping the Nothing, a mysterious dark force, from engulfing the fantasy world of Fantasia. The film was a German production, and at the time, it was the most expensive movie made outside of the U.S. or Russia. Okay, listeners, you have to try. You have to care.
1: This is the Never Ending Story. Come on, you stupid horse. What
2: is the secret of this enchanted book? What wonders are hidden within its pages? What magical spell does it cast on all who read it? What is the secret of the never-ending story? But that's impossible! Enter a world where a young boy's imagination becomes a vivid reality. The world of Atreyu and Artax. The Rockbiter and the good and kind gnome. A world that is vast and eternal. Treacherous and dazzling. Unforgettable and free. Yeah! For anyone who's ever made a wish believed in a fantasy, or had a dream, this is The Never-Ending Story.
0: Ten-year-old Bastion, played by Barrett Oliver, is a shy and outcast motherless book nerd. With his head in the clouds, who lives with his widowed father, one morning, after being chastised by his father for drawing little gay unicorns on his homework, Bastian makes his way to school, only to be chased by bullies who will inevitably peak in high school. Bastion escapes by ducking into a bookstore, annoying the bookseller, Mr. Coriander, who hates Churin. <laughs> Bastion's interest in books leads Mr. Coriander to think Bastion may not be completely trash, and Bastion asks about the book Mr. Coriander is reading. Mr. Coriander advises against reading it, explaining that it's not a safe story like regular books. With his curiosity piqued, Bastion secretly takes the book titled The Neverending Story. (gasps) He said the thing. And skedaddles out of the store, leaving a note promising to return it, and hides in the school's attic to read instead of taking a math test. Just like I would do. The book describes the fantasy world of Fantasia slowly being devoured by a malevolent force called the Nothing. The childlike Empress, who rules Fantasia, has fallen ill, and the young warrior Atreyu, played by Noah Hathaway, is tasked to discover a cure, believing that once the Empress is well, the Nothing will no longer be a threat. Atreyu is given a medallion called the Orin that can guide and protect him in the quest. As Atreyu sets out, the Nothing summons a vicious and highly intelligent wolf-like creature named Gmork to hunt down and kill Atreyu. Atreyu's quest directs him to the giant turtle-like Morla, the Ancient One, in the Swamps of Sadness. Though the Orin protects Atreyu, his beloved horse Artax dies horrifically and traumatically as it sinks into the mud and is lost to the swamp. Atreyu continues on alone and finally meets the giant turtle-like creature Morla, who is allergic to young humans and doesn't have the answers that Atreyu seeks. Despite his nihilistic apathy, Morla reluctantly directs him to the Southern Oracle, an impossibly far 10,000 miles away. As Atreyu succumbs to exhaustion, trying to escape the swamps, Gamort closes in and nearly rips Atreyu's legs off as he is narrowly saved by the luck dragon Falcor. Falkor takes him to the home of two elderly gnomes who live near the gates to the Southern Oracle, two giant sphinx-like statues with tiggle bitties and <laughs> the biggest fucking nipples ever, and violent laser eyes that destroy anyone who tries to pass who doesn't know their own worth. Atreyu crosses the first gate after dodging the tiggle bitty lasers, but is perplexed when the second gate, A mirror that shows the viewer's true self reveals a boy, which Bastion, the reader of the story, recognizes as himself. Atreyu eventually meets the Southern Oracle, also gigantic sphinx statues, who tells him that the only way to save the Empress is to find a human child who lives beyond the boundaries of Fantasia. A child who needs to believe, who needs to care, and needs to give the Empress a new name. You have to try! Atreyu and Falcor flee as the Nothing consumes the Southern Oracle, breaking her Tiggle Biddies into rocky chunks.
1: A sentence you never thought you'd ever say. I
0: know. I'm still shocked. <laughs> in flight, Atreyu is knocked from Falcor's back into the sea of possibilities by the approaching Nothing, losing the Aurin in the process. He wakes on the shore of some abandoned ruins, where he finds several murals depicting his adventure, including one of the Gmork hunting him. Gmork then reveals himself and explains that Fantasia represents humanity's imagination and is thus without boundaries, while the Nothing is a manifestation of the loss of hopes and dreams and imagination. When Gmork realizes that the boy speaking to him is Atreyu, he leaps at him, only for him to run into Atreyu's knife he runs into Atreyu's knife 10 times. <laughs> as Gamork dies, the nothing begins to consume the ruins. Falcor manages to retrieve the Auron and rescue Atreyu as the nothing consumes all. The two find themselves in a void with only small fragments of Fantasia remaining. Fearing that they have failed, Atreyu uses the Auron to guide them to the ivory tower, if it should still be standing. Sure enough, they spot the empress's ivory tower among the fragments of floating rock in the void. Inside, Atreyu apologizes for failing the empress, but she assures him that he has succeeded in bringing her a human child who has been following his quest. Bastion! She further explains, just as Bastion is following Atreyu's story, others are following Bastion's, revealing that all levels of reality make up the never-ending story. As the nothing begins to consume the tower the Empress explains that Bastion must call out her new name to save Fantasia. Disbelieving he has been incorporated with the story he denies these events actually happened. Bastion finally gives in after she pleads directly to him to call out her new name. Bastion runs to the window of the attic to call out his hippy dippy mother's name. Moonchild! Into the fierce storm raging outside bastion awakens with the empress who presents him with a single grain of sand the only remaining piece of fantasia the empress tells bastion that he has the power to bring fantasia back with his imagination all he has to do is wish it bastion recreates fantasia and flies on falcor's back to see the land and all its inhabitants restored including atreyu and artax what his next wish will be Bastion brings Falcor to the real world to chase down his school bullies, proving that absolute power corrupts absolutely. (laughs) And that maybe nothing is better than the cruel dictatorship of a motherless child.
1: (laughs) You like that? Yeah. I think I missed the point. Go biddies. <laughs> the Neverending Story was released in the US on July 20th, 1984 on 950 screens. It grossed 4.3 million opening weekend, securing the number 4 spot at the box office. Other films in the top 10 that weekend included a bunch of other gateway horror movies, including Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Indiana Jones, and the Temple of Doom, and scariest of all, The Muppets Take
0: Manhattan. I know that every time we cover a movie from 1984, we say the exact same thing, but what a fucking good year at the movies. I know. I mean, for real. Yeah. The Muppets Take Manhattan is my favorite this movie. <laughs> <laughs> the movie would remain in the top 10 for four weeks and would gross more than $20 million domestically. Globally, it would prove to be a popular financial success worldwide. The NeverEnding Story would gross more than $100 million against a reported budget of $27 million in U.S. money.
1: The NeverEnding Story holds an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 81%, and the site's consensus reads, A magical journey about the power of a young boy's imagination to save a dying fantasy land. The NeverEnding Story
0: remains a much-loved kid's adventure. Hmm. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave it three out of four stars and praised its visual effects, saying that an entirely new world has been created because of them. A comment echoed by Variety. Ebert's co-host Gene Siskel said that the film's special effects and art direction were cheap-looking, and that Falcor the Luck Dragon resembled the sort of stuffed toy you'd win at a county fair and throw out when you left. He also referred to Noah Hathaway as a dullard and said that the film was much too long. Jesus, Siskel, who hurt you as a child? Even after Ebert pointed out that the film was only 90 minutes. <laughs> really? Every time he says something, he's just like... Show me on this cheap Falcor doll where the guy touched you. I mean, <laughs> Let's go to the county fair, win a prize, and then you show me where you were hurt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Vincent Canby panned the film as graceless humorless fantasy for children. In a 1984 review in the New York Times, Canby's criticism charged that parts of the film sounded like the pre the pre teenager's guide to existentialism. <laughs> he further criticized the tacky special effects and that the construction of the dragon looked like
0: an, an impractical bath mat. <laughs> I fucking love these reviews. <laughs> I disagree with them some somewhat, but <clears throat> yeah. Colin Greenland reviewed the never-ending story for Imagine Magazine and stated that perhaps the heroic quest of young Atreyu to save the land of Fantasia from the all-consuming nothing might have been more convincing if it hadn't been so clumsily edited. Whatever. The topmost review
1: on Letterboxd states, Halfway through this bullshit, the title seemed less like a fairy tale and more like a threat.
0: (laughs) Author Michael Enda was initially happy about his book being turned into a film. Enda worked with Wolfgang Peterson as a script advisor and was paid only $50,000 for the rights to his book. Enda claimed that Peterson later rewrote the script without consulting him and felt this adaptation's content deviated so far from the spirit of his book. Quote, Fantastica reappears with no creative force from bastion that he requested that production either be halted or the film's title be changed when the producers did neither he sued them and subsequently lost the case and it called the film a gigantic melodrama of kitsch commerce plush and plastic well my (laughs) i think
1: he was really happy that his book was being made into a movie um but you know he signed the rights away And so they ended up being only able to do half the book into a movie. Right.
0: Right. And I think that like the second movie, which I've never seen, is the continuation of that book. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. The film
1: did uh, get some accolades. So at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Music, but lost to Gremlins and Best Fantasy Film, but lost to Ghostbusters. Hard year.
0: Mm -hmm. But it won Best Performance by a Younger Actor for Noah Hathaway, who plays Atreyu.
1: Yeah, who's, who Siskel called a dullard. A
0: dullard. Right. I mean, and obviously, like, his performance is good just from that one fucking scene, which I'm sure that we'll talk about.
1: I th- Yeah, and I think his performance is good also considering that his entire performance was ADR'd after the fact.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, there's going to be fun facts in this. I feel it.
1: Mm-hmm. So the film spawned two sequels, The NeverEnding Story 2, the next chapter in 1990 and the Neverending story three escape from fantasia in 1994 in 2009 the kennedy marshall company among others were in the early stages of creating another adaption of the book that would examine the more nuanced details of the book rather than the remake of the original film but by 2011 kathleen kennedy of all people said that problems securing the rights to the book meant that a second adaption was not meant to be however in September 2022, it was reported that a bidding war for the film and TV rights of the never-ending story between studios and streamers has emerged. Ooh. That's that's late, latest news, right? That's within the last like, 30, 60 days. That's
0: right. Um, there was a joke at some point. I don't even know where I heard it, but they were like, if the never-ending story never ended, why is there a sequel? Blah, 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 blah. It's always stuck with me. Because really, Why? In 2019, popularity of the theme song by Le Mall soared after it was featured in the third season of Stranger Things. Online streams of that song jumped from 300,000 downloads to 1.5 million downloads a month.
1: Yeah, when we've seen Stranger Things do that more recently, with, with right. Running
0: Up That Hill. That's right.
1: There's the bush the kate bush yeah and they're just bringing things into the modern era from the 80s you know which is fine fine. i mean i'm
0: glad that younger generations are discovering music that i liked as a kid yeah sure
1: good you know just like
0: uh we were introduced to
1: tiptoe through the fucking tulips by insidious (sighs) oh christ that fucking song hate it Mm -hmm. so scurry. our music's better in the 80s agreed although i'm not sure how old
0: (laughs) tiptoe through the tulips is i think it might be 70s (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it just sounds older but i never want to hear that song again so. the- okay what did i just say <laughs> you know what scares me yeah so we've got
1: a cast here we do and i don't know we can, we can talk much about them because they're not a lot of them aren't like big actors today like barrett oliver i think is some like lawyer somewhere or something or maybe that's a kid from hook i can't remember I, I
0: was kind of thinking that watching this, you know, cause I was, you know, making the document and writing all these names and I'm like, <clears throat> I don't know any of these people's names today. Like, I don't know that they're acting still or yeah. what? No,
1: like Noah Hathaway. He's, he's gotten on like the, there was this big Spotify commercial a couple of years ago. Um, and they redid everything and they covered up his tattoos with like paint and gave him a wig to wear. And he wrote on Falcor and the original voice actor, um, uh, fucking <laughs> Alan Oppenheimer. Yeah. Uh, did the voice. They brought him back to do the voice of Falcor and they did this whole commercial.
0: Oh my God. I need to see that.
1: Yeah, it's great. And th- there's a whole making of video on it and it's just, it's fun, but he owns like a tattoo shop and he actually goes around along with Tammy Stronach to some of the um, cons and stuff to like talk and be interviewed and stuff like that. And uh, Tammy Stronach was the childlike Empress, right? And mm-hmm. was only in this movie for a bit part, but she made a huge impression but she did not have any interest in being an actress after this. Really? No, she wanted to, to, to be a dancer.
0: She looks like a dancer. I can she see that. She didn't come
1: back for another credit until like 2008. Right? Wow. When she was like asked to do something. And then only later and after 2008 would she come back to the cons and stuff because she had a whole ballet career. Like she was a like a big deal about
0: ballet artist. I think. She looks like a ballerina. I can totally see that. Like, yeah. Just from this movie. Right. I mean, she had a lasting impression on me. Like, I fucking loved the childlike empress when I was a kid. I know. I was like, fierce, work it. <laughs> I wanted I saw- that <laughs> thing that she wears on her head with a little jewel on her yeah. forehead so bad. I would just like, how can I fucking make this myself?
1: Well, I was watching she made an impression as a kid, but I was watching this as an adult. I mean, just last last night. And I was just like, the nuance in her performance is there's a lot going on there, you yeah. know, she's not, she's really like doing a lot of heavy lifting with her, you know, just like the, the tiny the little changes in her facial expressions, yes. you know, and the way she talks as though she's a complete adult, you know, and even an older adult, you know? And so there's a reason why she's a childlike Empress, right? I guess entitled only, I don't know what the description is in the book, but she really did seem like she was way older than what she looked like just from the way she talked, um, you know, and expressed herself. Bastion. <laughs> so pronounced. Alan Oppenheimer did the voices of, like we said of Falkor, Moric, Rockbiter, Rockbiter. I love that character. And mm-hmm. the the narrator who we did not need. Um, and all those were uncredited except for the Falcor, but he was also of course like I mentioned the voice of Skeletor and like some of the Transformers and a bunch of other things throughout the time uh, throughout the 80s and 90s. That's so neat.
0: I used to watch He-Man all the fucking time when mm-hmm. I was a kid. It's probably why I'm gay.
1: He does all kinds of characters and voices. Like he doesn't just do one thing. You you never know if it's him or not. Really, it's cool. Yeah. So we also have Patricia Hayes. Um, the only other thing I've seen her in is, is uh, Willow, as the the good witch, I guess. And I always like seeing her because she's so pronounced. She has a, such a screen presence. And she was uh, Urgle, the the gnome's wife.
0: Yeah, she's super funny. Yeah. And a really really good time. I I like that couple a lot actually.
1: Yeah. We have Sydney Bromley. I don't know what else I've seen him, in, but I feel like I have.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that last night too when I was watching it. And I That's was just her gnome like, husband. Yeah. yeah. I was like, through the makeup, I was just like, I feel like I must have seen him in something. He has a very distinct voice, or maybe he was just doing it for that character. But it's all nostalgia, right?
1: Because we're yeah. remembering the when we saw it as a kid, but also I kept remembering the Princess Bride and the, that older couple, you know? That's right. And Get to that wench, wench. <laughs> you know, it's a very similar scene, right? With like uh Billy Crystal and um Carol Kane. Carol Kane in The Princess Bride.
0: I know, because very similarly, while, we're, while I was watching it, I was like, oh, I'm going to watch The, to watch the Princess Bride next. I was just like, <laughs> God, just based on that couple. We also have Moses
1: Gunn as Chiron, which is the servant of the empress that was addressing the crowd at the beginning of the movie. Um, Deep Roy as Teenie Weenie, the messenger riding a racing snail at the beginning of the movie. And I guess again at the end and a little bit. But uh, Deep Roy has been everywhere as well and including like Tim Burton's uh, chocolate factory and a, a bunch of other things. So we've seen him all the way up into modern times. His since then character's name is teeny weenie. Yeah. Did they say that? In the movie? No, but I was going to like credits, but that's deep Roy and uh Tila Pruckner. I don't know who that is. Um, as night hob, a messenger riding a narcoleptic hang glider bat. <laughs> and Robert Easton as the voice of Morla, which is uncredited. And we have the real world characters as Thomas Hill as, um, the, the book seller, which I feel like I've seen him too. He kind of like, he kind of reminds me of like uh, Sean Connery in, in the last Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. I get that vibe. Yeah. And Gerald McRaney, who I know I've seen before as Bastion's widow, widower father.
0: So Gerald McRaney was uh, the lead in a TV show called major dad. Okay. He was married to Delta Burke for a long time, but he dead. and I feel like
1: if we look at this cast, we, we step back a little bit. Including like modern fantasy or at least up to like the last couple of years, modern fantasy. This cast is relatively inclusive. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like much less a fantasy movie in the 80s. Right. And so we have like people in power, which is a little girl. And, you know, Moses Gunn, who is an African-American. Those are the people in power in this movie. That's right. Right. And then we have Noah Hathaway as a trailer, who is supposed to be a Native American protagonist. Although in the book, he's supposed to be like a Native American slash like blue skinned or green skinned.
0: Yeah, I think it's like 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 the green skinned
1: people or something. And they hunt the purple buffalo hunting the purple buffalo, whatever. And uh, Thomas Hill, who is actually Indian. He plays the the bookkeeper. Really? Yeah. What? Uh, He's an Indian born uh, British actor, I think, or American actor. Huh? Yeah. And then we have Deep Roy, who's African Indian. He's an Indian born in Kenya.
0: I didn't know any of these things.
1: Yeah. And so we have like, you know, we still have this little white boy as the the reader, you know, but like, like if you look at the, the differences in people all across Fantasia, like everyone's completely different. It's really embracing differences and inclusivity in a way that's very casual, which I really love.
0: That's right. And I don't think that I really noticed that as a kid, or maybe I just didn't, you know, like differences in people didn't. Register with me or something like that, which I guess can be a good thing. But there are some moments when I was watching last night seeing Moses Gunn, like, stand in front of that, like, very, very white lit area. And I thought to myself, I was like, this is not something that you saw very much in, like, fantasy movies in the 80s. Like, we took for granted having an African-American actor, like – doing this, being in this role in this movie. And I don't remember thinking those things as a kid. I don't I remember didn't. thinking anything was
1: special about it. Nope. You know, and that's great. That's yes. perfect. Because we internalized it and we normalized it by watching something like this. That's like right. Representation matters. It is true. And we are better people because of it. Yeah. So uh <clears throat> we can move on for the cast a little bit and talk about the background. Okay. Yeah. So the adaption, like we said, only covered the first half of the book. German producer uh Bernd Eich- Eichinger saw his children reading the book and they urged him to make a film out of it. And he was reluctant to adapt the book, but agreed to do so and acquired the rights for, like we said, $50,000.
0: That is next to nothing. Even in 1984 money. That's yeah. crazy.
1: Well, I mean, they were thinking it was probably going to be a German product, which it was, yep. you know, maybe a smaller movie. You know, and so the guy was probably just really like flabbergasted and happy that he was, his work was going to be made into a movie, right? And so the bulk of the, the bulk of the film was actually shot on stage one of the Bavaria Studios, so in Munich, in in Germany, uh, with the street scenes and the school interior and the real world shots in Vancouver, which yeah. I thought I recognized, like the Gastown Vancouver steam clock can be seen in the bully chase scene at the end of the movie as the the three bullies are chased down Campbell Street. Uh, Canby Street, uh, past the uh, steam clock in the intersection of Walter Water Street and then down uh, Blood Alley.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The beach where Atreyu falls, which was filmed at Playa del Monsoon in San Jose, Almeria, Spain. Okay. So that's absolutely vital information that you needed to know.
0: So all over Europe and, but and parts of Canada. Canada. Yeah.
1: Mostly on soundstage in Germany, like the Swamps of Sadness. I mean, that's, you know, Swamps of Sadness, we're
0: in uh, Washington, D.C. I don't fucking know. (laughs) That's where they are for sure now. Uh, Yeah, and that's, I'm glad you said that I was shot on a stage because uh, I was watching this movie last night and I was kind of blown away by like the art direction. Yes.
1: So they did a lot of uh, set extensions and you can tell now, like when you're looking at like the, there's an overhead camera that's going down on the ivory tower during those scenes where they're walking up the steps or like the crowd is being addressed at the beginning of the movie Mm -hmm. and everything outside of that big stage area. So it was a big set was set extension either on set, like done with matte paintings in the back or placed in later um, with uh, cutting out the film and putting it on another negative.
0: And I don't think that it I recognized good. a lot of matte painting in that, but I mean, like the 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 fucking art direction—you could tell that it was shot on a soundstage. Obviously, well, there's but- ways
1: to do set extension either diet like in actually in camera, mm-hmm. as well as not in camera and just
0: using a, a background plate. But however, they designed this movie from from that stage looks. Good. Like I was like, this is brilliant. Kind of art direction. Everything was placed just so they have different kinds of like lands and stuff like that. And I I just really, really dug it. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Wolf King Peterson for a second? Yeah, because I am kind of familiar with some of his work, Um, but it's never a name that I recognize. Right. So, yes.
1: Yeah. So he originally did uh, a bunch of like German movies, I, I think, and his most successful of that and still to this day, his, his highest rated was Das Boot. Okay. Right. Yeah. About the German submarine during like World War Two, I believe, mm-hmm. which has a famous soundtrack um, to it also. And which was done by, of course, the same guy that did this movie. And uh, he also did a movie called Enemy Mine, which do you recall? so good. We might have to deep dive that at some point.
0: I love Enemy Mine. I'm down for that. Could
1: be gateway horror, too, if you think about it. Yeah. In the Line of Fire, which I believe is the second highest rated movie. And that's the uh, Eastwood, right? Maybe. And then Outbreak. I remember Outbreak. That's for sure. Okay. I think everyone rewatched that one during the pandy. Yep. That's also a horror film. Air Force One. Uh, Get off my plane. Yeah. the, The Perfect Storm. Okay. Troy, which, if you haven't seen the director's cut, is far superior to the theatrical. I have not. I really like it. And then Poseidon, which I think is the remake of the Poseidon Adventure. Yep. You know what? I have seen all of these movies. I've seen every single one of them except for the In the Line of Fire.
0: No, I remember In the Line of Fire because that's where Clint Eastwood is playing a Secret Service agent. So. Yeah, I remember that movie. These movies are good. I
1: might have seen it back in the 90s and just not remembered it. But, I mean, like, every other movie is way more memorable, in my opinion, because they're much more, like, fantasy-esque. Yeah. You know, um, The Perfect Storm was good. I mean, he makes good movies. Yeah,
0: he really does. And they're all different, too. That is true. There's a lot of different genre in that particular filmography.
1: Yeah, like, Troy is an epic, like, sword and sandal, right? And so...
0: I mean, Das Boot is, I mean, like... Dust Boots a very, very good movie. Yeah, they teach
1: that in film school. I mean, it's Yeah,
0: it's well made. Yeah. And Enemy Mine, I don't, I mean, like, do people even talk about that movie anymore? No,
1: they don't. But it seems like it's fairly widespread where everyone just, like, has this loving opinion of it but never talks about it.
0: It's so good. I remember watching that movie a lot when I was a kid. Me too.
1: Yeah, I'm, you know what? And yet I remember, like, the feelings of it in some
0: set pieces, but I don't remember, like, the whole thing. And it's really I mean, it's one of those movies that, you know, that I like because it's like one setting, two characters. You know what I mean? It's such a good movie. I watched that a lot when I was younger and I have not seen it in a very long time. That's
1: Dennis Quaid, right?
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, it's blowing my mind right now. I have got to watch Enemy Mine again. It's been way too long. So Wolfgang Peterson, good for you, man. Making all these good movies and the never ending story. And this was his first English language. That's right. So yeah. right after Das Boot, mm-hmm. right? Or not right after uh, Das Boot? Uh, a little bit after, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good.
1: Yeah. So the film score of The New Story was composed by Klaus Doldinger uh, of the German jazz group Passport, and he also, of course, did Das Boot. Which is a very famous theme. If none of you are aware, you should look it up. It was also made into uh, like some sort of EDM back in the late '90s. No shit, really. <laughs> yeah So I want to say this soundtrack slaps. Do you have to say it that way?
0: <laughs> We're too old to say. I it didn't slaps. have to. It what would have cost
1: me zero dollars not to say that. <laughs> But you're right,
0: though it does,
1: and not just the main flying theme that everyone remembered. Yeah, like we both like <laughs> <put> our, <laughs> fucking hands on <in> the air. Because <laughs> you can't not. You can't not, right? But it also has like the swamp of sadness uh theme, the ivory tower theme, nothing themes. Every single set piece has kind of its own very memorable theme, and uh and are all unique and memorable. And I. I really, I, I listened to this when I was doing all the notes today. Uh, today for this deep dive, I was listening to this in isolation. I'd never done that before, you know. Just like that main flying track, you know, or the actual yeah. song, which is different, right? The th- song is an actual completely different theme than actual music to the movie. And funny enough, the German um, theatrical release did not have a, the song Li song in it, really at all. Nope. it was just the soundtrack, which is enough, really. Right, and so the only way at times you get that theme of that song is the beginning of the end of this movie anyway mm-hmm. it's not woven in at all you can't really fit it in no and so you know there's a lot of nuance and detail in this theme is and there's some pieces that were kind of going me be like Pink Floyd you know and some other things there's a lot of like electronic and synthesizers and orchestral and it's like really really well done there is a lot of electronic
0: aspects to this score and it's I mean like obviously I watch this movie a lot. When I was younger and, like, I, I knew all these themes, right? They were stuck into my head. At the very least, the flying theme and the ivory tower theme, right? Um, But it seems very much of its time, right? Today. Yeah, yeah but I still fucking love it. Oh, I love it, too. I think it's great, right? But I, I could listen to that and it was like, it sounds like an 80s kind of, like, fantasy theme. Anything with synthesizers is going to sound exactly. 80s. It's going to be dated instantly. But right. I feel like that's coming back. Oh, it is, definitely. It's all over the place. Yeah. So the
1: theme song that we keep talking about, the English version of the film, was composed by Giorgio Moroder. Do you Yay.
0: know?
1: You obviously know about him.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm super gay.
1: Yeah. So with lyrics by Keith Forsey and performed by uh, Christopher Hamill, once the, the lead singer of uh, Kajagugu and Beth Anderson. So if you don't know anything about Giorgio Moroder, he is known as essentially the father of disco and a lot of people say the father of edm
0: okay yes i would i mean because he's still making music today yes
1: and so he, and he's 82 he's an italian composer songwriter and record producer dubbed the father of disco marauder is credited with pioneering euro disco and electronic dance music his uh, work with synthesizers had a large influence on several music genres such as high nrg um Italo disco, new wave house and techno music He's produced singles for Donna Summer uh, from the mid to late 1970s disco era, including Love to Love You, Baby, I Feel Love, Last Dance, MacArthur Park, Hot Stuff, Bad Girls, Dim All the Lights, No More Tears, or Enough is Enough, Mm -hmm. and On the Radio. Um, He began to compose film soundtracks after uh, and scores, including Midnight Express, which actually won Best Original Score at the Oscars in 1978, uh, American Gigolo, uh, Superman 3, Scarface, The never Story, obviously, and the 1984 restoration of Metropolis, interestingly. Yep. He's created scores of songs for many performers, including David Bowie, Kylie Minogue, Irina Kara, Janet Jackson, Madeline Kane, um, Melissa Manchester, Blondie, Japan, and France uh, Jolie. And Roder has also stated that uh, the work which she is most proud of is Berlin's Take My Breath Away. <laughs> Right? which yeah. earned him an Academy Award for Best Original Song and the Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song in 1986. He also earned the same awards in 1983 for Flashdance. For, you know, Flashdance. What a feeling. Yeah. So I love this man. I really, really do. I hadn't really known about this. I didn't know he did all of these other things, too, including Take My Breath Away. Like, yes. Take My Breath Away and Never Ending Story or like some of the most iconic songs of the 80s.
0: Well, and also Flashdance. I yeah. mean, so, like, his work is fucking impeccable when it comes to pop music especially pop music of like the disco era Mm -hmm. it's just so good like he made every single donna summer song like sound excellent Mm -hmm. i mean like she really owes him a debt everything yeah right i mean her voice is great you know what i mean but like she had a, a a sound you know and she has him to thank for that had him to thank for that um and That Kylie Minogue song? (laughs) So good! And I feel like I'm so gay right now. But it's just excellent. So yes, this man, he deserves all the fucking praise. And his work is just so, so good.
1: And he did. He also received four Grammy Awards, two People's Choice Awards, and more than 100 Golden and Platinum Discs. In 2004, he was inducted into the Dance Music Hall of Fame. And he continues to have his fingers in many, many musical pies, including Daft Punk's Randomax's Memories album, uh, com- a lot of commercials, and more modern singers like Lana Del
0: Rey and Lady Gaga. He's 82 years old, and he still has his finger on the pulse of pop music. I'm I- on the button. <laughs> My finger is on the button. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Giorgio Moroder. I swear, so good, so good at what he does, and like honestly, anybody who appreciates like like pop dance music, right? Just they need to know who he is and look into it because he has influenced everything. He really just made this music what it is today. And I feel like I've gushed probably enough about it at this
1: point. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't just like leave it at that. You know what I mean? Like I, I I saw, I looked him up, you know, Matt got excited when he saw him in the credits, you know, and I just did some research and I was just like, we have to talk about this. Yes, we do. And I you know I'm going to make a playlist. Yeah. <laughs> for for next pool season. There you go. So we did discuss a little bit of the look and feel that we love so much about this. We already talked about the sets and everything, but also the creature design. Yeah. You know, and I feel like for 1984, this did a really great job. Similar so to like Empire Strikes Back uh, with like the asteroid scenes and stuff. They did a lot of great work with like the nothing taking over, yes. you know, and all the debris and mm-hmm. and all of like the, I, I think it's like macro photography with all of the, the, the cloud work that they did. Oh, so at the beginning? Uh, Well, no, with the nothing, with all oh, the clouds okay. kind of swirling and stuff. At mm-hmm. the, the, the beginning, I think it's actual clouds. Oh, no. Maybe it's like fucking cotton candy or some shit. I mean, it
0: looks kind of... It looks otherworldly and not real. Yeah, right. But so, not like in a fake way, but in a, like a otherworldly way. Right. It looks tangible. But, yeah but not something that we'd recognize,
1: right? I don't know. Maybe they made a a mile-long, like, set of, like, cotton candy clouds and, like, zoomed out of it. Like, I doubt it. That's where all the budget went. (laughs) We got to eat it afterward. Turn around (laughs) and look at these fake clouds.
0: (laughs) Make believe you're in the air. I do all the time. Uh, Creature design, though. Take a big gummy. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So last night I was watching this, and I like I remembered this movie like when I was a kid, right? I mean, this is this is gateway horror, right? This is what we're talking about. Oh, it. Yeah, this movie scared the fucking shit out of me when I was a kid. Oh, me too. And and all- not exactly what you'd expect either, too. Probably. So, what scared you the most? Uh, you know, obviously Gomorrah scared the shit out of me. Gomorrah. <laughs> My God.
1: But something so abstract as those. Giant statues really, I think, scared the shit out of me as a kid. Really? Yeah, because they're like, it really like, it
0: shows the knight going through those statues, the gate. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they fucking obliterate him. That's right, because when you, I was thinking about that last night too, when he looks under the helmet or whatever And it's a fucking
1: skull, burnt-ass skull. Yeah, it's gnarly. Yeah. And And then you can see like, it's eyes opening, it's doing close-ups, and the base is just like, at least in my system, was just like taking over. Mm -hmm. And it was... Really tense, and I remember as a kid just being like on the edge of my fucking seat, thinking that those things were going to disintegrate
0: him. Yeah, that is a tense moment. There's a feeling
1: of inevitability that there isn't for that monster.
0: But when I was a kid, I was just terrified of Gamork. Yeah, like every time my parents would put me to bed, because I watched this movie a lot oh, when sure, I was a kid. Too. And the lights would be turned out. All I could fucking see are like glowing eyes and like that wolf-like face. And so like last night watching this was a little triggering because I did have a little bit of a gum. Right. <laughs> and I was watching this and I was remembering how fucking terrified I was as a kid watching this movie. It was fucking green glowing eyes. And the yes. Darkness. Yeah. And the, the teeth. You know what I mean? And so like i was i was kind of scared myself just remembering like having that nostalgia scare yeah but usually in like in 80s movies when they
1: reveal the fucking muppet you know it's not scary anymore it's like look at the garlic we just covered something like what tales from the dark side from 1990 mm-hmm. you know that fucking gargoyle muppet please you know this thing could like eat that fucking gargoyle for dinner it could. It was actually scary. I was like, oh, it's not going to be as scary when the light starts like, reveal it. And I'm like, nope, it's still scary.
0: It's still scary. <laughs> and it's gigantic, I mean, too. Yes. And it I mean, like it holds up to me a little bit, like, in, in the scare factor. However... I mean, it's obviously, like, some sort of animatronic or puppet, you know? Yes. But, I mean, it's a scary-looking one versus a Muppety-looking one. Exactly. But, I mean, I, th- I feel like... Um, some of the some of the creature effects today when I'm watching this, or maybe I'm because I'm watching it on you know high def television or whatever. And maybe like when the gormak was talking, it didn't seem like its mouth was kind of matched up to the words. I don't know. It could have been my TV, I guess, but it kind of felt a little chucky cheesy for me in what? certain places. Like yeah, <laughs> like it seemed it seemed animatronic, and, I, and maybe just because I'm older now, but still like I was. I was still kind of scared or remembering being scared. And that was fun. It was me, fun to watch.
1: Me too. And I feel like that's also something that doesn't really bother me when the the mouth of a puppet doesn't exactly match the words and things like that. Although you heard a lot of that when people like modern audiences were watching like the new dark crystal show mm-hmm. and not really used to that sort of thing. And it didn't bother me at all. I never noticed, you know, as much as I
0: like the Muppets, you know what I mean? Like I should not have, maybe it's just being way too persnickety about it. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I just, I was look at the look of the thing and the sound of the thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, the voice, the look, it's still scary. The teeth are long and very, very fucking sharp.
1: But there's some really, really like if you just look at that dais or whatever at the beginning with the ivory tower, there's all kinds of different weird monsters. Some of them are better constructed than other yeah. creatures, I should say, not monsters. There's like giant fucking faces and there's things with like three faces and then things with like, two faces. There's like a fucking elephant in there. Mm-hmm. Like there's like all kinds of different characters, all completely different and not just like boring humanoids. You know what I mean? And we got the, the three different characters at the beginning with uh, the, the rock monster, rock biter or whatever, and the snail rider. And they're all different characters. Every, there's no single character in this movie that is the same race or species as the next really Yeah, (laughs) you know
0: no and it goes to show you like what kind of world fantasia is right it could be anything and everything right which we talked about in the synopsis a little bit and yeah all those different characters and they all come from different places in fantasia right they're always talking like i'm from the south and i'm from the west Mm -hmm. and whatnot i mean it's neat and they seem to like not at all know each other or be aware of each other's existence really and they're meeting for the first time i well like one of them knew that one being a rock biter or whatever oh that's right he's a rock biter yeah yeah yeah. teeny weeny
1: (laughs) Teenie <laughs> was like, that's a rock bottom <laughs> A what?
0: <laughs> a delicious looking quartz. Look up, you stupid bat. <laughs> <laughs> I love that bat. That bat is so cute. Talking about creature designs. Yeah. That is the cutest fucking bat. Last night, I was just like, I would own him and I would love him and yeah. I would pet him every day. Okay, I was Elmira. like, give me that bat. <laughs> when it, when they're at the ivory tower and the night hob is like looking in the window and the bat's head like slowly comes down so they can watch <laughs> to i was like oh <laughs> i love that bat
1: <laughs> and then there's the racing snail and you know anyway also cute yeah <laughs> So I don't know. Uh, I feel like the movie still looks good. It holds up. It looks dated, obviously. Yeah. You know, there's there's Muppetry, uh, you know, and there's there's
0: different things that just wouldn't look as good because CG didn't exist. Because it's 1984 and it's 2022 and we have had like leaps and bounds and all this technology. It's not going to look the same. Right. Yeah. And but I'm I'm a fan of things from the 80s and I don't care if it looks dated today. Right. Yeah. I mean, like some of the effects, like I said, were a little chucky Cheesy, but like. Overall, I think it holds up pretty well. Yeah, in the in the effects and design aspect. Same, I think so too.
1: I was thinking about like halfway through this movie, just with all the design and all of like the inclu- you know, like relative inclusiveness and and different things like that. I was thinking, especially after looking at the themes, like this is a movie that I would show my kid if I ever had a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it's not just as simple as good and evil or doing the right thing or something else. This is really covering some heady material for kids yes Yes it is right and so i wrote down a bunch of notes about like what is this telling us you know there's several different things it's not just one thing but there is main one main kind of overarching theme i would say that's like kind of a journey from nothingness to joy via self-determination freedom of expression and imagination
0: yes i would say that that is pretty much the the takeaway theme from this movie but
1: what is what is nothingness right and so what they're really trying to say with nothingness is depression and nihilism and a lot of this is expressed not just with the nothingness or Mork talking about the nothingness uh, or the nothing. It's it's talking about it a lot and showing more than it's telling in Swamps of Sadness, right? And so this is the whole thing before he even gets to Morla. And there's a good fucking reason why Morla is in the middle of this fucking swamp, right? From the shit that comes out of his mouth, right? And so the Swamps of Sadness is depression and despair, obviously. Mm-hmm. The Orin protects him which I guess I didn't really understand as a kid. I just thought he was a good warrior or something. Yeah, I really didn't get that until
0: last night, actually.
1: Yeah. And so Morla represents nihilism, existentialism, apathy, despair, and do nothing. Right? And one of his quotes is, Die? That at least would be something.
0: Something. Yep. You know? And it kind of gives you a little bit of a clue. I mean, yeah. Last night when I was watching this, I mean, I like I said, a little bit of a gummy, and that sort of makes me think a little deeper sometimes. And I was just like, "There's a lot going on in this movie that I did not recognize when I was a kid." I remember after watching this
1: movie, trying to contemplate what nothingness was, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that did some heavy lifting
0: in in forming my little gay brain. But I mean, at the time, I. To me, like the nothing really was just something that was sort of like eating the land away. Right. And I feel like maybe if I, I think the last time I watched this movie, I had to have been like 13 years old. We're talking like 30 years ago, you know? Yeah. And uh, I've had a lot of time to sort of think about it. and. No, last night it really kind of hit me. I was like, "There's a lot of like sadness in this. There's a lot of depression and nihilism, like you said, and it's like right there in your face, right?" Yeah. And so, like you and I were talking off mic earlier a little bit, and we had to have like brought some of that into our consciousness when we were watching this as children. It had to affect us in some way. Oh right? yeah,
1: I'm sure that we digested this and brought it into our unconscious in, at some point, especially with the amount of
0: times we would watch it. Because this is one of the first movies that I remember watching that made me cry as a kid. You know what I mean? Like, cry from emotion, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Certainly when uh, Artax dies. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, like, I was completely affected by that particular scene as a kid, right? And so, like... You're making a movie for children and trying to explain some heady ideas. And you have such a visual, like, really emotionally gripping and kind of gut-wrenching moment, right? Like, it really, really affected me when I was little. A lot. Yeah. And I'm I'm wondering
1: if the story of Morla is kind of like, you know, he can't die. He's the ancient one, right? And so he's just kind of sat down and given up. Yep. And his entire worldview is about nothing mattering. He can't die. And so there's just despair and doing nothing. And it's supposed to be symbolic of depression. And then it also shows that it's work to get out of it. You have to be determined. You have to actually do the work Mm -hmm. to get out of it and you have to make a choice. Right. And our text didn't, you know, whatever you want to say, Uh, you, you could say that Atreyu did choose but he also had the orin to protect him, but all of this is right there, and you—you you might say the swamp started to appear around Morla. You know, maybe, or maybe Morla created the swamp. Not that I care enough about the mythology of this movie to try and like deep dive it. You know what I mean? But it's there as far as a symbol. I think as far as symbolism, we don't care whether or not we care. <laughs> <laughs> well remembered, but um, yeah, it's about escaping depression. It's not just about depression and melancholia. But it's about escaping it and it's about the dangers of uh, nihilism as a predator, right? In Gamork, but also in what has happened to Morla and how he is and what happened to Artex. And also nihilism as a coping mechanism for depression. Oh, that's interesting. Right. And so if you are so depressed and down and everything is going wrong and everything is, you know – Think of horrible traumatic things like people close to you have died or whatever else. You know, maybe some people use nihilism as a coping mechanism to say, well, nothing matters. You know, some people who are depressed actually use suicide or the idea of suicide as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. If it all gets too much, I can always end it. And they use that to cope with themselves. And so it's this weird cycle of nihilism, existentialism, depression, melancholia that kind of complements each other. And so that's what the Swamps of Sadness and Morla and all this stuff kind of represents. And he has to literally get out of the fucking quicksand, the mud of of this depression to get through it. And I think that's really amazing to show visually to children.
0: Yeah, I agree. Because, I mean, everyone in their life is going to face something like this, right? And like you said, you have to have a mechanism to cope with. Uh, In Morla's situation, I don't think that he has the ability to to commit suicide right so i mean it would live forever but also i mean like that that particular character has retreated so far into its own mind right because it says something like we haven't talked to somebody for thousands of years so we just started talking to ourselves yeah you know i mean it's just like and it's more than just like depression like, like someone went through a pandy and all like, the, by the way he's sneezing on people and this is how pandies start i know sneezing <laughs> on people out and <laughs> blowing them out of trees <laughs> <laughs> coming on nose, put on a mask more it's, or like,
1: it's like my sneeze Maybe that's how I learned how to sneeze. <laughs> oh, my
0: God. You do have a very loud, dramatic sneeze. <laughs> I'm going to call you Marla from now on. you be like, I don't care if I sneeze, whether or not I care if I sneeze. I don't know. <laughs> so then we get into, like, uh, even
1: headier stuff, like knowing your worth, knowing yourself, right? And the horror of knowing your true self, the potential horror. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Kind people look into the mirror and they find out they're cruel, you know and all this other brave and brave people.
0: people find out they're cowards. yeah, right you know and so it's really interesting. That character really goes in and like sets the scene for that second gate, right? And he was just like, No, he was like, He's heading to the worst one of all. Like, men have run around screaming. <laughs> like, I was like, Calm down, sir. It can't be that bad. I'm yeah. like, Oh, but it is. I mean,
1: yeah. And as a kid, I never
0: understood. He just looks into the mirror and sees Bastion. That's know? right. But the concept, the idea of, like understanding who you are. Right. And like have lived an entire life. I'm 43 years old. If I were to go stand in front of this mirror and it would show me something that I didn't believe to be true to myself. You know what I mean? That is kind of fucking horrifying to see like what's deep down, what you have buried so far deep. Yeah. You're a horrible person. You Medea, but you get Medusa. (laughs) No, my mirror would just be me going like, hey, (laughs) you see a picture of Homer Simpson. That's right. (laughs) And I'd be like, my tracks.
1: I don't know. But uh, that's that could be a movie in and of itself anyway. Right. And there probably has been. But uh, there's also themes of creating your own life and your future a lot of stuff about choice here. And that's the kind of the running theme, I think, through all of this sadness, knowing yourself like there has to be effort. There has to be concentrated effort and imagination to get through all this stuff. And at the end of the day, only the viewer can ascribe meaning to art. And part of that is a choice. Right, what am I experiencing, and how do I try to ascribe meaning to that? Reminds me of Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, awesome book if you haven't read it. I have not. Um, You know, it's it's about you know him as a, a psychologist. You know, uh, going through and like experiencing the Holocaust in concentration camps and coming out of the other side of that and talking to his other people, his own experience, but all the other people that he went through it with and trying to get them through the deaths of their wives, their children, finding meaning for it, ascribing meaning for it. And the people that could not do that killed themselves or just died of illness or, or just gave up, you know. And so there's a lot of that in this, you know.
0: Well, and I feel like meaning as people like ascribe it to art. Is is themselves, right? It's it's selfish, right? It's everything that you experience or have experienced, and you're like putting it toward what you're watching, reading, listening to, whatever, right? In this particular movie, Bastion's journey is all of these things, right? Yeah. So he's like lost his mother, his father is distant, right? Who's probably having some issues of his own. And well, he's definitely having issues of his own, and we'll talk about that later. But yeah, I mean, he's not he's not a very good dad, you know, and so like there's this kid who. Uh, lives in his own world, right? And has nobody to tell him that it's okay. He's lost his mother. And like he, through the course of this movie and the course of reading this book, sort of like comes to terms with himself and knows his worth and knows that he's okay and is flying on the luck dragon. And what's interesting is the Empress is actually asking him to have
1: an opinion. That's right. She's saying, what does this mean to you? Mm -hmm. And as soon as you ascribe meaning to it in your own way, in your own voice, and whatever you want... Design it intentionally and it's yours. It's a wish. Every wish you make makes Fantasyland or whatever the fuck it's called, Fantasia, you know, a more uh, beautiful place, right? And so he's ascribing meaning to it and dictating what his meaning is. And that's his choice.
0: And I, I, I love that he names her after his mom. Right. Cause I feel like his mother would probably be giving him very similar advice. Right. Yeah. And the child like, certainly, <laughs> I mean, moonchild would be telling him like, here's a grain of sand. Like it's big like wishes. You okay. know what I mean? And that's exactly what he needs to like crawl out of like his own depression. Right. Yeah. So, and this reefer. and Here's a grain of sand and this reefer. (laughs) Hey, Bastion, you want (laughs) to smoke? Pass, Bastion. Look at this grain of sand. (laughs) So sparkly. But yeah,
1: he's he's, he's
0: taking uh, ownership of his life in that moment. That's right. right. I love it. I love it. You know, watching this movie as an adult is actually kind of like cool, you know? And because you, you can stop and really think about like what this movie is about and appreciate it more than what you would as a child. Right. Yeah. And when you say things like I would show this to my kid, I really applaud that. I think that parents should do that. Cause it's an easy way to say like in your life, you're going to experience vast amounts of emotion. It's like Mr. Rogers on crack in a way. It's I, like <laughs>
1: Here's your emotions and you are responsible for them. And there is a choice there. You ascribe meaning to it and design and create your, your life. And it's a choice. How do you
0: take ownership of your own agency? That is true. I mean, you can like make a choice on how you're going to experience these emotions or how you're going to process them, but like emotions happen regardless. Right. And you can't always control them, but you have to be able to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Right. So good. Lots of themes. Wow. It's real heady.
1: So uh, there's some moments just to get lighter. We went a little too heady real quick. So Let's get a bit lighter. Uh, I did write some notes just walking walking through this movie. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the first thing I noticed in this movie is that dad, horrible dad. We don't know how horrible, right? This is like, this could be a bad moment, but he has like a two-page monologue about his son needs to like get his head out of the clouds and his feet on the earth. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, but while he's doing that, he is chugging egg and orange juice, like raw egg. And I'm like, stop it.
0: That he blended it together. I was just like, that is gross. Like they have all this food. The table is set. You know, there's like jelly and peanut butter and bread and actual butter. And he's like drinking orange juice and an egg. I was like, I would stop listening to my father right there. Even as a kid, I was watching this. I was like, no were you ever you like doing? curious as to what it tastes like no because i was kind of curious last night i was like i wonder what that tastes like tastes like i don't know chicken butter orange juice <laughs> i mean i'm gonna try it snotty orange juice is what it tastes like i'm gonna try it but i'll wait till i get to my house just Why in case cook i egg first
1: right i mean no you can have a raw it's fine the orange juice is not gonna do anything for it and lemon juice might there's not enough citrus and orange juice.
0: Just get a pasteurized egg.
1: <laughs> anyway, we get introduced to Rockbiter and Friends, which, you know, it's an interesting opening to this movie because we're talking about the plot. And it's right. an interesting way You know, for people to meet up and just talk about what's going on mm-hmm. uh, before they actually get the actual exposition. You know, so I thought that was interesting. It's also it shows us like, OK, there's different creatures here, different sizes and shapes. They don't necessarily know each other. And this is a big world. So it it tells us a lot just in this, this opening. And I thought that was interesting that's right I mean including the ivory tower where we see even more of like the people in this I land, love the reveals right? in this movie every reveal of the ivory tower I'm like get chills but a lot of that might be my nostalgia da her so, <laughs> so, da-da.
0: <laughs> da-da. Uh, when Moses Gunn walks out of that that door right the door opens and he comes out of it do you think that the outline where the light is coming from looks like a vagina no it does though it's like a <laughs> vagina
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that said, I did make an audible comment when we were watching last night when he goes into inside the ivory uh-huh. tower and the doors closing up behind him. I'm like, does that look like a vagina? Anyone else? <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I was starting to feel real stupid. I was just like, <laughs> so I guess the lesson is I can't spot a vagina unless I'm already inside it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true typical man right <laughs> <laughs> oh my god anyway uh that fucking wolf g- gmork which we've already talked about swamps of sadness that fucking artax moment i didn't cry this time i was just like i did yeah i wasn't i was just like i was just imagining you going artax
0: now <laughs> so i was laughing i mean it's still sad though like i got teary-eyed maybe but it is you know, but so- i like i so that that scene is very 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 fucking sad
2: The, of the swamps get to you. You have to try. You have to care. For me. You're my friend. I love you. I'm dead! horse! You got move.
0: And I traumatized a whole generation of children. It did. And so like I was expecting it. I knew it was coming and I was like, for sure, I'm not going to cry. I'm a grown man. But no, when he's pulling on that horse and it won't come out, I just fucking lost it. I had to pause the movie and like step away. I had a whole moment because it's been a long time since I've actually seen it. I've just made fun of it. Yeah. I think my emotions kind
1: of grew as I was going through this movie because it was like later on when I like actually got
0: like a tear in my eye okay well i cried again too so let's we'll see if it's the same pipe.
1: yeah uh when uh let's see moving on um Falkor appears and I wrote down sperm dragon because <laughs> it looks like a sperm. And the first view of it, he's like flying through the air in the distance. and it just like a big
0: sperm. We did we did not watch this movie together, listeners, but I swear to God, we have almost the exact same reactions to things. Because I was just like, when it's like wiggling through the air, I was like, semen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then the fucking thing would not stop winking at him. And for <laughs> the love of Christ, it's serving me petto energy. And I'm just like, stop winking, please.
0: <laughs> It's a very slow wink, too. A knowing wink. Hi, Bastion. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) You just scratch behind
1: my (laughs) ear. (laughs) God, coded. (laughs) And then I just had Patricia Hayes with an exclamation mark. She's so good in this. She is. She's a little little gnome girl. Uh, And then the Sphinx. I was like, oh, my God, this, this might have been the first time I saw Bubes. Fake boobs, rock boobs, but first time I might have seen outright naked boobs in a movie. Or maybe it's The Last Unicorn. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, it might have been The Last Unicorn, that goddamn harpy that haunts my dreams to this day. Because I was like, oh shit, I forgot about The Last Unicorn. That needs to go on our top ten list for gateway horrors
0: from the 80s. And thank god you added it. For real. Um, The Sphinx and those breasts. I had completely forgotten all about it. <laughs> and I was watching this last night and I was just like, why Those seem like incredibly large nipples and breasts. Yeah. And I I remember
1: like like, watching as a kid and thinking, Am I supposed to be watching this?
0: Maybe it's what made me gay. I was just like, Those titties are too big. (laughs) I don't want any of that. No, I think it's, I think it's honest. I think it's fine. And it also kind
1: of mirrors European views, right? Which is like sex and the naked body is natural, violence, not so much.
0: Yeah. Not in America, though.
1: That's not how we do things here. It's a little backwards here. Mm. So anyway, um, let's see Uh, then we get kind of after that moment it's kind of like it just gets into like the wrap up so Fantasia and Oblivion right so we've got the the moment that I actually had like the little tear in my eye which is like he comes across Rockbiter and Rockbiter's talking about losing his friends Mm -hmm. to the nothing and he's just sat down and has given up they
2: look like big good strong hands don't they I always thought that's what they were. Oh, my little friends. I couldn't hold on to them. The nothing. Pulled them right out of my hands. I will just sit here and let it take me away too. They look like good, strong hands, don't they?
0: And I was like,
1: oh my God.
0: Yep, the exact same moment. There's the two times that I cried in this movie last <laughs> time. It was Artax and that Rockbiter soliloquy or whatever. I was just like, oh my God. Like, Because he's almost like Morla at that point point right there's nothing else that he could no he
1: definitely is feeling some strong things yeah or or morla doesn't give a shit
0: well he's feeling things but he he's not really doing he can't do anything about it it's nothing he can do he tried at
1: least yeah he thought he was the strongest thing in fantasia and he just couldn't do it Mm oh i feel like that every day (laughs) Wow, I wonder what you see in the mirror—a <laughs> big, fat, pulsating ego, <laughs> probably. <clears throat> so, uh, and then the child, le- the childlike empress, is like the last thing I wrote because she leaves such an impression. She does such a fucking good job mm-hmm. in such the small amount of time because uh, she's a lot of heavy lifting to do. She is styled. She has to look exactly into the camera and it's hard to do with a straight face, you know, and make it work and it works. And she does. And And maybe it's working through my nostalgia filter, but it's working for me.
0: A lot of this movie is going through my nostalgia filter and we'll talk about that when we get to the ratings, I'm sure. But Uh, I also don't remember her talking about the audience. I I caught that little bit this time,
1: mm -hmm. which is like, and there are people watching Bastion you know, and all of those things make the never ending story. It's all these multiple levels of reality. And I was like, and so I wrote that into the synopsis.
0: All of us are the Orin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's together. the snake eating itself. It's right. The back and forth forever. Yeah. <laughs> <Ew. laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, like we've, we've talked about the actress a little bit, but she is, she's striking. Uh, she's styled perfectly. Like when she's sitting on that bed with like the dress around her and everything, I was just like, Oh my God, it looks so good. And like, she is a great actress for a young person. And I really, really enjoyed the end of this movie with her like it's, mm-hmm. it's really really good
1: yeah well i have some questions before you have some questions Oh, okay <laughs> were you ever disappointed that this wasn't like as a child were you ever disappointed that this wasn't actually never ending as a kid
0: no i like my things to have ends
1: even as a kid
0: even as a kid like right. i just
1: thought something magical was going to happen and it's a never-ending story and i was like super intrigued as a kid and so we watched it and i was just like it ended and there's the like, credits no, I like my stories to have endings. All right. There were several people in Letterboxd I saw that complained about that, like uh, when they were kids. Really? And so I was like, holy shit. And so it's a thing. Wow. Listeners, let us know if you were disappointed
0: with this when you saw this as a child. We should sue them for f- false advertising <laughs> or something. Yeah. This is a Simpsons joke. So, I mean, Lionel Hutz does that. He's like, we sued the never ending story for false advertising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So did you have trouble hearing the name Moonchild
0: in the 80s and 90s? Do you want the actual answer to this question? Yes. I didn't know that he said Moonchild until you told me several years ago when we were talking about this. That's exact.
1: Okay, so... My sister and I would put this fucking VHS in and we would turn up the volume to 100 fucking percent. Yep. And you could never hear what he said. It was too muffled over the storm. Uh It wasn't until the Blu-rays came out, maybe DVD, but I think Blu-rays, when you could actually hear what he said. This is before you could just turn subtitles on. You know what I mean? And so no one knew what the name was. It was like this big mystery. And it worked for the movie. I don't think it was intentional. Maybe it was like great in the surround sound in theaters back then. Maybe. But it did not work on home video. Did you see this in
0: the theater? No. I didn't either. Um, but I, I also had the VHS, right? This was, last night was the first time that I've seen this movie not on video cassette.
1: It wasn't until like AOL chat rooms or some like old vestiges of the internet in the, like the 90s when people started being like, "Oh, it's Moonchild." It's in the script. We got the script.
0: I literally was in my thirties before yeah. I knew that. A lot so, of people don't know. Yeah, until I,
1: they see a modern version of this movie.
0: Although now that I do know, I heard it plain as day. Last now, day. That, yeah. <laughs> now that yeah,
1: now that my speakers are like in the ceiling and like behind me and everything, it was all
0: the the storm was all around me and above me, and then Bastion was like Moon Child, plain as day. Yeah. No, I love that because you're. I had no fucking idea. And I always wanted to know what he said. I was like, I it's have no idea. It's part of the
1: mystique of the movie. Like, no one knew what the fuck he said, oh. you know? And now it's, like, not a mystery anymore. And they should just, like, muffle it more. Moonchild. <laughs> and then they should, like, make it all, like, chicken scratch or something in
0: the subtitle. So you don't know. So when you do have a child to show this movie to, will you please name it Moonchild?
1: Moonepicent.
0: There. So we make fun of like, like Gertrude. a and a beat rice. <laughs> no, name your kid that I changed my mind. <laughs> are there lots of fun facts?
1: Uh, there are, there's like six or seven of them. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. And I don't have fun as usual. A lot of them are, huh? Right. Okay. Yeah. Which I think they should be. So, in Greek mythology, Atreus was the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus. His name is also the basis for House Atreides in the Dune series. Hmm. See, you went, oh. That's right. Huh. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) Wolfgang Peterson is known for having his actors do their own stunts, including children. Wow. So, Noah Hathaway was hurt twice during the making of this movie, and while learning to ride a horse, his horse threw him off, stepped on him. And while shooting the drowning sequence in the swamps of sadness, his leg got caught on the elevator that was moving the horse up and down. Mm -hmm. And he was pulled under the water. He was unconscious by the time he was brought to the surface.
0: My God. How did this man continue to make movies later on?
1: It's the 80s. Anything goes. That's right. Children are expendable. Just watching the Milo notice. I mean, I was a child in the 80s and I felt expendable every day. I mean, come on. Drew Barrymore is like the fifth clone of herself. (laughs) Copy of a copy of a copy. It's all makes sense. (laughs) So he almost, also almost lost an eye in his fight scene with the Gmork. So one of the claws on his giant paws poked him in the face. And then the robot body was so heavy that he lost his breath when it hit, hit him to the ground. So they only made one shot of it due to the risk of danger. Jesus Christ. It was supposed to be more drawn out.
0: <laughs> Surprised no one died making this movie. He almost did. Jesus.
1: Yeah. So two scenes from the book were written in the script but ultimately scrapped due to the special effects limitations. The first was the initial appearance of Falcor, where Atreyu rescues him from Gramul the Mini, which is a swarm of poisonous wasps taking the form of a giant spider. Oh my god, you would have
0: lost your
1: shit. Everyone would up? Are you kidding me? Like, this would have been way more, like, not even Gateway anymore. It would just have just been, like, straight up horror. So this is where Bastion's scream is is able to be heard by the characters in the book, and that's where it was supposed to have taken place in the movie. Okay. It also explains why Atreyu and Valkar are later seen being given medicine by the gnomes. Hmm. So the second cutscene involved Atreyu and Valkar entering the wild giants or the wind giants, giant creatures made of clouds and being caught in a fight between them. This was re edited into their close encounter with the nothing before Atreyu falls into the sea. Okay.
0: Man, I would have liked to see that.
1: The wasps all taking shape into a fucking spider? Yes. What the fuck is
0: this guy smoking, and why is it for Kiss? have loved it, even as a kid.
1: For real. So the roles of Bastion Atreyu and the Childlike Empress were recast for The Neverending Story Part 2, the next chapter, due to the ages of Barrett Oliver, Noah Hathaway, and Tammy Stronach, who were all in their late teens in 1989. Stronach wouldn't have returned even if asked, because she didn't sign on for the sequels, and she wasn't interested in acting, instead she went on to dance and theater. Jonathan Brandis. Kenny Morrison and Alexandra Jones Jones, assumed the roles instead. So Jason James Richter and Julie Cox took over the roles of Bastion and the Empress respectively in Neverending Story 3 from 1994. So I have never seen the sequels. I've seen two, right? And it's supposed to, of course, cover the next half, but that's coming up as well. So the next one, this is important. Contrary to a rumor, which I never heard, but maybe elsewhere in, the 80s, you know, pop culture. Uh, There's a rumor that the horse that played Artex did not really um – Uh, that did actually die during the filming of the Swamp of Sadness scene.
0: What? I never heard that.
1: Yeah, so Wolfgang Peterson confirmed that the horse did, in fact, survive. In fact, two identical horses were used for that scene, and they were professionally trained by a horse handler for months. So while the scene was filmed, the, the crew would alternate between the two of them, and both horses remained unscathed. Peterson also expressed full understanding in the shocked reaction of the audience and also said that the sadness of the scene was necessary for the story and the character, which, of course, he's right.
0: Yeah, we we need that. We need that moment in that movie. It's so important and uh, just fucking heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad the horse didn't die. I would not heard that. And if it turned out to be true, I would be very upset. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is my last one. As we said, the movie only covers half the book.
1: The book continues on uh, with Bastion getting sucked into the pages and using his imagination to shape the world around him. But every time he makes a wish, he loses an earthly memory. And this leads him down a dark path as he slowly forgets who he is and where he came from. And so this kind of brings on balance to the first half of the story by saying, okay, you need to take onus of your life, you know, ownership of your life, and you need to uh, grab your agency and be creative and, you know, ascribe your own meaning to things. But at the same time, maybe a little bit of what your dad said is right and don't live so high up in the clouds that you've lost
0: all reality. You know, I was just about to say it makes everything his father said kind of true that you have to sort of balance your life a little bit. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what his dad meant when he sat down. He was just like, we all have things to do, you know, and. He was uh, like hinting at that. Jonathan Brandis, man. That's a name from the past. And also Jason James Richter. These are some 90s names. Yeah. When when I was a little young gay boy, I mean, crushes were had on both of those actors. Mm -hmm. So good. Those were fun facts. And I'm glad the horse survived. So good. But we have some questions to ask about... The NeverEnding Story, like we do about every movie that we cover here on the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, it's the first time we've asked this in a while, is The NeverEnding Story
1: a horror movie? I don't know that it's meant to be, but in many ways it is, yeah. right? And so it's straddling the line. as gateway horror. It is. And by definition, I think that's adjacency, right? And so there's an
0: argument to be made that there are sections of this movie that are horror. I mean, maybe incidentally, right? They may not have been intending it to frighten people, but it did. Oh, they were definitely intentional with the fucking Gmork. Yeah, the Gmork was meant to be scary.
1: Yeah, and a little bit with maybe those statues, although that's fantasy intrigue, you know?
0: But I was talking to somebody else about this movie, and they were like, yeah, I was scared of the rockbiter when I was a kid.
1: Interesting. Maybe a smaller, smaller children, like four, three, four years old.
0: And so I was just like, I never really got that. I was never really scared of the rock rider but I could see it's big and kind of like there's rocks falling because of what it's eating and things like that. Oh, and another fun fact, of course, he's doing his roller through the forest at the beginning and he actually says, shit, <laughs> he like goes
1: <laughs> over something. Does he really? Yeah, but originally it would be like Shaisa or something like that, which is not really a, a curse word, you know? Uh, and so okay. they translated it. But so what they had to do in the theaters was like um, turn up the sound of his destroying the forest in order to cover up the... I'm going, sure. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, but yeah, this movie to me is, I mean, it's obviously horror adjacent, right? I think we can call it that. Um, but like, this is one of the movies that I watched when I was a kid that really, really got me into some sort of like, dark stuff some dark material yeah. afterward like i i liked it i liked being scared by the Gomorrah. i liked being scared at night after i'd finished watching the movie by the Gomorrah, and mm-hmm. it sort of like brought me into my horror experience right so this was very definitely a gateway to horror yeah probably like, the number one gateway to horror for me yeah it's like the pot <laughs> of horror movies the pot that's right <laughs> and now it's like the just of just shoot up Horror heroine. I don't know. I like it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, this and an Unsolved Mysteries. You know what I mean? This really, like, made me a huge horror fan. So give it props to that. Were you scared while watching The NeverEnding Story? E-
1: this time? No, not really. Um, both. As I a mean- kid, yes. Hell yeah. The statues and the Gmork, the the wolf thing. It scared the shit out of me. And the nothing a little bit too, the concept of it, you know?
0: I think that's what scared me the most this time, right? It's because like the the, the more scared me a lot when I was a kid. But watching this now um, and like understanding what the nothing sort of represents a little bit more, right? Or like the concept of something coming in and just destroying everything, including yourself, right? That's a lot. It's a lot to take in, and so I think like watching this as an adult. That's really where you find a lot of the fear. So, all these actors are fifty now. Stop saying things like that, (laughs) Christ! What'd you say in the car today? You're like, so our midlife was two thousand and one, and I almost turned around and hit you. (laughs) Like God, I mean it's true, and that's terrifying as well. So, out of five stars, what did you rate the Neverending Story? I gave it a
1: four and a half because I was like, this is a movie I'm going to show my children. And I appreciate the fuck out of it because it's teaching like really valuable, interesting lessons that aren't easily digestible at first, you know, but you like take in and it's like, uh, just like super well done, super imaginative. It's relatively inclusive, like shockingly. So on this watch, you know, and a bunch of other things. And then I was like, okay, some of that's nostalgia boner. (laughs) And
0: so I, I, I knocked myself down to a four. So I had the opposite, right? So originally after I watched it, I was like three and a half, right? Because so I was just like, it has to be all nostalgia boner. And then after the movie, I was thinking about it. And I was like, I don't give a shit at this point if it's nostalgia boner. I was like, I really, really like this movie. I enjoy watching it. I have very fond memories of it. And I always will. And I, yeah. And I wasn't bored at all watching this. Like no. What other kid movies that you might've enjoyed when you were a kid. Like, I was not. I was totally in it. I was Fascinated by this movie last night and yeah. so I gave it I bumped it up from three and a half to four stars <laughs> so <laughs> we met in the middle yeah I just really really like this movie a lot and I feel like I always will you know and I watched it so much as a kid that I like knew the dialogue. You know what I mean? I still know the dialogue and it takes a really impressive movie to make that kind of impression on you. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Four stars all the way. Um, since most of the characters in this movie are children, shall we skip who's the hottest guy in the never ending story? Or did you make, Yeah, selection? I don't
1: think there is any, I was going to be like rock you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, like night hop,
0: whatever, yeah. you know, deep Roy. <laughs> I, I love that fucking name though i mean <laughs> come on honestly but yeah i mean like no nah, we're just not going to do that for Neverending never-ending story yeah join us next week when we bring back that
1: question <laughs> will we what's the next week's legend oh there's some hot guys yeah okay it's, it's always one want to fuck satan in that tim movie, curry sure. <laughs>
2: every day <laughs>
0: I think that just about wraps up our conversation on the never ending story. We've waited a long time to talk about this movie, and we definitely want to know what you all think about it and our conversation. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now TikTok.
1: You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or you can call our hotline at 972
0: 666 7733. Come on, you stupid horse. Cock. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry. Man.
1: You have to try. You have to care. <laughs> Say my name. <laughs>
0: I'll try you. Bastion. Bastion. <laughs> okay, it's
1: getting creepy. Let's stop.
0: I know. Oh my God. I'm surprised we
1: didn't quote more in this episode for real. <laughs> We've been doing it for years and we didn't like
0: do a single, like our tax thing. I'm disappointed with us like fully, but if you would like some more film flamers content, and I know you do head over to patreon.com slash the film where you can find all of our bonus content and get episodes early. That's right. And uh,
1: I believe we're having a little bit of a poll This month on Patreon so that you can uh, fill the gaps a little bit with some of that gateway horror. That's right. We need y'all to pick the gateway horror we cover on Patreon. You have to care. You have to try.
0: (laughs) 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 We have to make up for it now. Uh, Also, we are looking for more reviews. So if you like us, head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Leave us a five-star review and we will read that on Shooting the Flames. As we just alluded to, we have more Gateway Horror content coming out for you next week. We are covering Legend, another movie that Chris and I have been looking forward to having on the podcast. That's right. Well, Chris, I think it's time for me to uh, go off and try and care. Well, it's definitely a time for me
1: to go back to my swamp of sadness. I know. And have oh, some sweet drink. We fucked that up.
0: And have some sweet dreams. I was going to be like, I want to try, but I don't care whether or not I care.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to look in the mirror. It's just Morla. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't care. He's on eyeless and he sneezes all the time.
0: Fuck. Damn it. It's you. <laughs> I, I thought I was Morla all the time, but I was wrong. <laughs> I'm Artax. <laughs> <laughs>